This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week is our third in a five-part series on our gardens as important habitat links for the wildlife of our regions. This week, Christine Nye of Chicago's Lakeside Shed Aquarium reminds us that this includes the fish in our waters and the birds in our skies. Every garden that I've conceived of and installed is to just bring that point across to people because we have an aquarium and we have to have the infrastructure that supports that before we can have it, and that is our planet. And that is why I have the gardens that I have, because they do help. Stay with us for more. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. For this week's third episode in our five-part series on our gardens as healthy habitats, we go inland and we get aquatic. On two levels, you'll see what I mean. We're joined this week by Christine Nye, horticulture manager at Chicago's Shed Aquarium, a Beaux-Arts meets state-of-the-art aquarium, originally built in 1930 along the shores of Lake Michigan in Chicago's Grant Park, on a sister site to the Field Museum and Adler Planetarium. A migratory bird garden is just one of the gardens surrounding the aquarium and under Christine's caring eyes and hands. Many of the shed's gardens have been directly planned for creating habitat, but as you will hear, what she's doing at the Shed Aquarium this last 20 years is a model for her entire region and beyond. And it really gets to all of the layers we're intending and striving for when we talk about gardens that create healthy habitat for all creatures. Christine joins us today from the studios of WBEZ in Chicago to share more. Welcome, Christine. Thank you, Jennifer. I really wanted you to be in conversation with me during this series. But before we get before we get deeper into this, I would like you to describe for listeners your your current work and practice there with plants. Maybe talking about your your private work with plants as well as your professional work with plants. And, and one of the things that I want to point out to listeners is you wouldn't think of an aquarium as a place that you go to see a garden. And yet it's, it's a perfect example of the importance of gardens everywhere. Yeah. I, I'd like to back up a little bit. Um, before we talk about my work, because I think it's instrumental to know how I got there. When I was hired at the aquarium, I started doing in the inside exhibit spaces, which is where we were trying a new thing, putting terra firma in with our reptile and fish exhibits so that people could experience the habitats that these animals came from. And then... Um, my mentor was taking care of the gardens outside, and he was the first horticulturist that we had on the property. And he did the first, the first swing at it, um, took the property from seven species of plants to over 650 in nine years. 
So that was a pretty tremendous change. And when I inherited the gardens as as my own, I I got this rich tapestry of plants. But because of where I had come from, because of how I grew into horticulture, I wasn't approaching it with the same eyes that he was. He was um, classically trained, and I was trained by working with my grandparents. So I stopped using all kinds of chemicals, um, and I started to plant native plants on the property. Now we had, you know, a lot of oriental plants and and African, and it was a beautiful, beautiful garden. But through the through the luck of being there for four construction initiatives, I got to change up all these spaces that had been previously planted into my own vision. <laughs> so, growing habitats that reflected our Midwest habitats, I thought would be really instructional to our visitors. At the same time, our institution was on a sustainability track, and I wanted to make all the gardens relate, have a relationship with our mission. This is something I tell all my interns. Make sure your employer knows what value you bring to the mission, and that way you'll have job security. So that's what I did. <laughs> and today, I think, I think we've got over a 1,000 species. They've been asking me to do a database for years. And this year, I'm actually going to do it. Um, and then I'll have a more accurate number. When you talk about the gardens, describe how much total space you're working with and, and the different areas you're, you're talking about in this space that you have um, kind of revisioned. We have four acres outside, and then we have terrace areas as well. And, you know, I haven't really figured out whether those fit into the four acres or whether those are plus. Um, but in any case, we have more gardens now than we had originally. I've taken almost an acre and a half of turf and turned it into garden space. And in doing so, I, I've turned it into garden space that we don't water. So we've saved on water, we've created habitat, and we've gotten rid of the monoculture. And it's more beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, so what do I do? Uh, the spaces. So you've already mentioned the migratory bird garden, but that was really the last garden that I put in. Uh, I started out wanting to put in a rain garden. It was as simple as just wanting to put in a rain garden and get people to understand what the use of that was. There we were on the lakefront, uh, surrounded by concrete, and uh, we had a place where the terrace didn't drain well. And I thought, oh, this would be a great place to collect that water and show people how plants could help ameliorate that situation. But when I presented that to my supervisor at the time, he said, oh, no, you can't make just one garden with interpretation. You need to do a plan for the whole campus. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, thank you. I'll do that. So um, I did. And so now we have 13 gardens, I think. Uh, we have a welcome garden, which is a big Hollywood meets horticulture space where we do a spectacular annual uh, and vegetable garden every year. I like to mix it up. So whenever I plant vegetables, there are always ornamentals involved. You know, this way you get better pollination, and it's just beautiful. And I started out on the vegetable uh, portion 
by doing ornamental vegetable gardens where all our school groups entered the building because I wanted children to see what their food looked like and ask questions and be surprised by the innate, beautiful architecture of vegetables. It's just sort of spiraled out from there. Now we have the Migratory Bird Garden, which is almost an acre in itself. We have a perennial foods garden, um, a formal vegetable garden, where we grow food and actually feed our animals. Um, we have a backyard garden, which is a, um, a space that the interns can use for experimenting, for learning new, new skills. We have an urban vegetable garden, which is a small space that would be comparable to what you would have in a backyard in Chicago, where we, we do a display about a lot of vertical uh, growing so that people can understand how many things they can layer into their vegetable garden at home. Uh, instead of just putting you know two tomatoes and a cucumber in there, you can put things up on trellises and get a lot more food production. We have a welcome garden with a beautiful fountain and all the plants in there. 75% are native, and the rest sort of mimic the savanna and prairies that we live in in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. We have a wetland garden that has um, native wetland plants and another water feature. We have three water features. Oh, yeah, we have a dune garden that has native dune plants in it. And so I've just tried to get people to, like, see things in a different way. Is a dune garden or is your dune garden reflective of a, an ecosystem or micro micro ecosystem that would be there along the, the Great Lakes? Mm -hmm. Yes. We're just up the side of the lake from the Indiana State Dunes, which is now a national park. And we wanted to have a place where our education department and others could take people into the garden space see what the dune looked like, talk about the plants, and then that would be a way to segue into talking about where water meets the shore in other countries or other plant, uh, other continents. Yeah. You've brought up a lot of threads of great interest to me. Um, one of them is that while the migratory bird garden is the one that sounds like it's most specifically aimed at creating habitat for wildlife, in fact, an element of every garden you have put in is creating habitat for children, for your interns and other students who might be coming through, whether those are visitors or working people. It is creating habitat for pollinators, and it is creating um, habitat for the, the soil that is the foundation for all of these gardens when you talk about the idea of no chemicals whatsoever. Yeah. You also mentioned the removal of a lot of turf, which I think is was a fairly significant undertaking there when I believe it was 18,000 square feet of green maintained lawn right along the edge of the lake. Well, it started out at 18 and it went up to 40. Okay. Talk about the significance of that in terms of input and output and runoff and habitat, Christine. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not a numbers person, but there's something like the state of Maryland and New York uh, comparable to that size of that area 
there's there there's that much turf covering the United States this year. We only have 0.01% of our prairies left. This all has a lot to do with our water quality. Yeah. This is key. And it was key to me too. And you're right, every garden that I've conceived of and installed with my own two hands and the help of others is to just bring that point across to people because we have an aquarium and, you know, we have to have the infrastructure that supports that before we can have it. And that is our planet, our earth. And that is why I have the gardens that I have because they do help with getting the water into the soil I'm so I mean I said it was raining at the beginning of this conversation and I'm I'm actually glad because maybe that's going to help melt the ice that's preventing water from going down into the earth right now instead of down the storm sewer. But yes, every garden has done its part and especially the migratory bird garden at habitat we're on the we're on the Mississippi flyway. Mm-hmm. I know you said you're on the Pacific Flyway. Mm-hmm. That in itself was an inspiration. Um, when we first planted the migratory bird garden, we were only doing a strip along the building. That was the first 18,000 square feet. And then the rest was still turf. But it was, it was following a construction initiative that we put this in. And the soil that was left after the heavy equipment and all the rock they put down to do the construction project wouldn't allow lawn to grow anymore. Gratefully, I was happy (laughs) because we had a choice there, and it was either to replace the lawn or to just expand the garden that we had already put in a year before where we had not watered it and had one person maintain it one day a week and not lost one plant in a year. So that's substantial. Yeah. And so to expand it to, you know, take up the entire acre was a great savings for us. Maintaining lawns is expensive. Um, you know, fertilization and having a crew come and cut it every week. Um, spewing um, exhaust into the, into the system. There were a lot of savings on that, Uh the noise levels, we, you know, I don't even allow my contractors to use machines that make a lot of noise after we open at 9 in the morning. I just don't. They can use a broom. <laughs> it works just fine. You had this construction initiative and you made a, a decision at this critical decision-making moment to not try and replace turf on soil that no longer was ready for turf anyway, and to expand a garden you'd put in the year before. Describe the rest of this process and 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 how it became in your mind this migratory bird garden and how you how you planned it and how you installed it. How I planned it and how I installed it. Well, first we had to uh, get rid of the turf. And then in the spring, we just, um, I ordered every native shrub and tree that was appropriate to the landscape. And then we had to site them because this garden is behind our oceanarium. And we didn't want it to interfere with the infinity view. We have a giant tank, a two and a half million gallon tank with the dolphins and the whales in front of the window. And it 
it's it's an infinity space that looks right out onto Lake Michigan. So you feel like you're in the lake with these animals. So we sighted all the taller grasses and species behind rockwork that is um, along the back of the habitat. And then I had my grower, Roy Diblick, come and forced him, <laughs> twisted his arms behind his back, to help me make a, a plant list that had at least 60% native plant material in it. And the importance of native plant material, I don't know if people really know, is that there are associations with faunal species in every ecological system on the planet that are closely tied to to the plants. And if you don't have the right species there, I mean, we, we witnessed this with monarchs, and we all know now monarchs have to have milkweed to raise their young. And the reason is not because they love them or because they look good on them. It's because that's the only plant they can digest. They can get nectar from other places, but they, their larvae can't digest anything except the milkweed species. So it's the same thing with every other animal. Uh, little bees, they might have one plant that they have an association with. And all this research is still being collected. But we know in general that if we put the habitat out there, they will come, and they have come. We have thousands of migratory birds visiting us every year. The thrushes, the warblers, the red-winged blackbirds. We have a cooper's hawk and a red-tailed hawk that hunt our property. So 60% native, at least, um, I'm, I keep upping it. I'm trying to get up to 75. And then, uh, so I laid out all the woody material, and then we filled in the blanks. And it's, it's, it's like any garden. It's not static. It's evolving. Um, we're seeing what likes it there and what doesn't. We planted native plants. You would classically say that's because they're adapted to native soils. But where our building sits, we're not on any native soil. We're on a landfill. Our entire museum campus, where the Field Museum and the Shed and Adler Planetarium sit, were all built in the 20s by coal ash deposits and whatever else went into the landfill. And we discover things when we dig sometimes, <laughs> you know, glass bottles and this and that, pieces of buildings. Uh, so it's not that our native plants were maybe generally well adapted to those soils, but they are resilient and adaptable. And so whatever flourishes, we encourage, and some things just don't, so they don't live there anymore. So it's like any garden. It's not static. The Shedd Aquarium was first conceived in 1924 along the shores of Lake Michigan in Chicago. Since its opening and its first director's broad vision, the aquarium's mission has always included research, appreciation, and conservation of regional species and ecosystems. In the last 20 years, this mission has been actively manifested through its gardens, inside and out. Under the caring direction of horticultural manager Christine Nye, the Shedd Aquarium's more than 13 gardens offer lessons in beauty and healthy habitats for humans and visiting wildlife, including the thousands of birds who visit, resting and refueling along their migratory pathway known as the Mississippi Flyway. 
Interestingly, I first learned of Christine's work in relation to the hops she harvested at the shed last year, and which went into a regional batch of Resilience IPA, the recipe created and sent out by Chico's very own Sierra Nevada Brewing as a fundraiser after last year's campfire. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. In this conversation with Christine, I was so moved by her voice of deep concern, worry, and care when she was sharing what percentage of the U.S. is now covered in maintained lawn versus the percentage of our native prairie plants, plants we love in our gardens, that are left remaining in their native spaces. And the inverse correlation between the increase in lawns, the decrease in native prairie, and the degradation of water quality and security across the board on all fronts. The gravity of her understanding and love and her despair was audible. Her deep gardening impulse is all the more impressive. Her decades of work and even in despair, her redoubled efforts to share the joy of her plant love and plant life with others is something I am so grateful for in this world. It's what inspires and motivates Cultivating Place. And hey, it's April now. If you want more Cultivating Place in your life, subscribe to our newsletter. The April of You From Here newsletter went out earlier this week. If you're not yet subscribed, this is the email update I send out towards the end or the beginning of each month. It includes botanical thoughts, links to great reads or listens, information on upcoming events, book or garden reviews, and more. It's garden life stuff I've been loving, but I haven't been able to feature on the show. If you love the podcast, I think you'll really love what I have to share in the newsletter, too. Head to cultivatingplace.com forward slash newsletter to sign up. Now, back to our conversation with Christine Nye at Chicago's Shed Aquarium. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back after a break to continue our conversation with horticulturist, Christine Nye of Chicago's Shed Aquarium, with their more than 13 gardens designed and cared for with the whole life cycle of fish and other aquatic life, plants, insects, birds, and mammals like us in mind. Welcome back. Describe the seasonal flow phenologically of, of the plants and bloom and seed that's there. I think the, the, the idea that you are on the Mississippi Flyway, I am on the Pacific Flyway. Almost, there are very few places in the country that don't have migratory creatures coming through. Um, Birds, butterflies, bees don't necessarily migrate, but they have seasons. And the importance that you were getting to of providing not just flowers in the summer so they can have nectar, but they need pollen, they need Birds need bugs to eat. They need a place to 
uh, rest. They need a place to nest. And all of these are slightly different requirements, and they come throughout the year in different ways. So you'll have one migration going north and then the other migration going south, and they need very different things at these different times. So so talk about how you've incorporated maybe with some specific plants in this garden to, to address these needs as you've learned and even when you started. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's a big one. Mm-hmm. I can say right now, right now we're in Red Wing Blackbird migration. And this is their nesting area. Now, when I started at the aquarium 22-something years ago, we had one red-winged blackbird come and nest with us one year. And we were so excited. And we put up protection. And we sheltered the mother. And we left them alone. And then I continued to add habitat. Now, red-winged blackbirds eat insects for the most part. But we are where they like to nest. So they're coming up from the south, Georgia, North Carolina, and moving up. And right now the males are here staking out their territory. And we have 100 or so red-winged blackbirds now. So we have created a place where they come and they have plenty to eat. And they do nest all around our building. And they are the harbingers of spring for us. So we're really happy when we hear their call return. Uh, Then after that, we'll probably see an influx of warblers and thrushes, and they'll be following the same track. They don't really nest here, but they need a place to rest, and they need a place to refresh themselves and refill their bellies. And so they'll be here um, hopping around in the leaf litter and hiding out in our shrubbery and, and getting ready for the 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 latter part of their journey really soon, probably within the next couple of weeks. And that'll continue on for hmm, probably well into June. And that's probably when the hawks will show up because (laughs) there'll be plenty to eat. Um, But our, our resident crows usually chase them away. So there's just a lot going on. I mean, we have cormorants right offshore and pelicans come through and the cranes have been flying over. And Maybe describe some of the plants. Yes. So we have service berries. We have service berries all around the building. And I planted them for us because service berries are delicious, better than any blueberry you'll have. However, it's hard to get them before either the robins or the cedar waxwings or a number of other birds will come and steal them because they can eat them when they're just a little before ripe. (laughs) Mm-hmm. We also have aronia all around the building for their trip back, and um, ilex, holly berries. You know, we have lots of berries in our in our um, forests. For instance, honeysuckle, which looks like a great berry for a bird to eat, or buckthorn. But these are berries that don't provide. These are invasives, and these are provi- are are berries that don't provide the protein that the birds need to survive the winter or to make their travel home. These are sugar. This is like, you know, feeding your, your three-year-old cocoa puffs for breakfast instead of um, eggs and, or <laughs> something similar. Sumac. We have sumac berries. How many people do you have working with you in the gardens on a regular basis, Christine? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have two full-time staff. 
and then we always have interns. So I generally have two interns per season. So two spring interns, two summer interns, and two fall interns. We don't bother with the winter. Yeah. Right now we're back in the greenhouse because we're preparing. We grow all our vegetables from our own starts. So we've already got about 4,000 plants growing in a greenhouse that, we're, that we use. We don't have our own greenhouse. But we've already got all our kales and cabbages and kohlrabis and parsley. And we started peppers the last two weeks. Um, so we grow a lot of different varieties of food and a lot of different kinds. We're going to be putting in potatoes soon and shallots. And we don't grow all the food for our animals, obviously. Um, iguanas don't eat shallots. <laughs> but we do. Um, and that's kind of a perk for my staff as well. Uh, urban agriculture is so important. Right now it's a huge topic. A lot of our interns come to us because they want to learn how to grow food. Mm. We have a lot of different methodology going where they can do that. You touched on this when we talked about the removal of the Um, remaining turf after this last construction initiative or one of the construction initiatives and the putting in of the full scope of the migratory bird garden. I think one of the things that people often think is that lawn is simple. It's a monoculture. You mow it, you fertilize it, you have your mow and blow crew come once a week and we're done. But in fact, that is actually very labor-intensive. It's also very input-intensive and is directly correlated, as you mentioned, to really detrimental water quality uh, in the form of runoff from our hardscape areas, which in essence a, a lawn often is just a hardscape, and the water flows right off with all of the inputs that have been put on it into our storm sewers, into... Our river systems. <laughs> our, our rivers, our lakes, all of our surface water. And this cycle is so beautifully right in your face where you are along the Great Lake. And so you you touched on the savings to the Shed Aquarium when you remove that lawn so that you removed that labor and you cut off that part of the cycle that in you know toxic input onto the green lawn that goes directly into open water and directly impacts our our fish and uh, water plant species as well as all other creatures who live in in the water not just fish um what is the maintenance like and what what kinds of inputs do you use there? Because I know you have a pretty uh, comprehensive and impressive compost uh, program as well. Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, every plant, every piece of plant material or branch, whatever we cut off, we have a compost bin that gets picked up twice a week on the dock and goes to a big commercial facility. Uh, so that that all, all that that's all wealth. That's all food for the soil. I mean, leaves don't make trees don't make leaves just for the fun of it. They're actually dropping them around their feet so they can refeed themselves. So by using that compost on our grounds, we're just putting back what would naturally be there. And and yes, lawns. You said it so beautifully. Lawn, the lawn looks cheap, but it's really very expensive. Uh, monetarily, but also it's expensive to the environment because it just creates a lot of 
garbage that doesn't get recycled, that, uh, like I said, the exhaust from all the equipment that's used to maintain that, and the um, inputs, the fertilizers. The lawn doesn't really allow the water to flow back into the soil. It pretty much runs off for the most part. And that's why I wanted to put in the prairie plants, because they have deep roots and they create spaces in the soil for the water to go back. Maintenance of the migratory bird garden as opposed to the lawn. Describe that Describe that for us. Yes. So right now I have a group, and it's usually three people, who go out with a uh, a very simple instrument. It's called the Dutch push-pull hoe. It has a diamond blade on the end. And um, they just go through and take down inappropriate seedlings, be they weeds or be they you know, plants that are especially happy to grow there, um, to sort of keep things on, in balance. And so I- instead of calling it landscape maintenance, we call it gardening. <laughs> this is something that landscape maintenance companies do don't generally think about. We have this ethic where we've planted plants on a grid and put down mulch between them, and we call that landscaping. But that isn't what we're doing. We're creating some sort of a fabric of plant material in the back where we have low, we're trying to encourage low season, cool crops to grow around the other prairie plants. And by sheltering and shading the soil below, we prevent a lot of the weed species from germinating. Hmm. And that's the kind of maintenance we're moving through this space. It's not a talent or a a tool that landscape companies are familiar with a lot of times. And so this is a sort of revisiting gardening that we're trying to encourage people to embrace, especially landscape companies. And that difference between what people mean when they say landscaping and or maintenance and what they mean when they say gardening is is at the heart of all of all of this because it is about looking and it's about understanding what you're seeing because you are in a long-term relationship with it and then it's a matter of of editing and working with to Make sure that, you know, as you mentioned, one particularly successful native doesn't dominate the whole exactly the whole environment or an invasive doesn't get a foothold. And that matrix planting that you described of putting little plants in among the feet of the, the taller, more charismatic prairie plants and allowing that protection of the soil and feeding of the soil at different uh, levels deep is so, it's so important and it's so different. In this, our third episode of five, Centering Our Gardens as Critically Important Habitat, we're speaking with Christine Nye, who for 20 years has been primary in developing and caring for healthy habitat gardens at Chicago's Shedd Aquarium. An expansive migratory bird garden now thrives there where once up to 40,000 square feet of manicured lawn sat. Christine is aiming for the migratory bird garden to consist of up to 75% native plants. The garden now includes native trees, shrubs, flowering perennials, bulbs, and grasses for close to year-round forage and cover for wildlife. 
We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud here. As I listen to Christine describe the beautiful call of the red-winged blackbirds arriving at the shed this spring, how when she first started gardening there, there was a single nesting pair, and now there are hundreds. My heart lifted a little. Here, where I garden and cultivate place, we've been hearing our meadowlarks and seeing them increase their activity. The snow geese and the sandhill cranes, they're moving too. Their high-calling conversations are audible, overhead, sometimes plaintive, sometimes melodic. You can hear them before you see them, craning your own neck to find their line against the sky. Simultaneously, a little closer to Earth, the painted lady butterflies are migrating through right now, en masse. Their populations seem strong this season, a solid reminder of what we care about and why. And on the ground level, we seem to be at the tail end of the forest-to-water migration of our endemic California newt, such a sign of the season. As we knew it would, spring arrives with all kinds of signs of life and messages of beauty calling out to us. Our gardens are perhaps our most loving reply to these very calls. What creatures mark the season in your garden? I'd love to hear. I hope you might share with pictures or comments by email to me so I can share them out or post them on the comments in the weekly Cultivating Place posts on Instagram and Facebook. I'll look forward to seeing and hearing from you there. And thank you, as always, for listening and being here with me in this. Now, back to our conversation with Christine Nye. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back after a break to continue our conversation with Christine Nye, horticultural manager at the Shed Aquarium in Chicago. Her visionary migratory bird garden at the Shed, one of the 13 gardens she developed and oversees there, welcomes and helps to sustain birds passing through on their north and south migrations along the Mississippi Flyway, which stretches from the headwaters of the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. According to the Audubon Society, more than 325 bird species make the round trip each year along the flyway, from their breeding grounds in Canada and the northern United States to their wintering grounds along the Gulf of Mexico and in Central and South America. Welcome back. I have a question for you. I read an interesting report about migratory and or resident geese and the trouble they can create when they will find a place and say, this is great. I'm I'm loving this open lawn. I like the adjacent water. I think we'll just stay here. They create a lot of 
waste in the way of poop, a lot of poop, which becomes quite toxic to open water nearby because it's not being processed in a dynamic soil plant environment, but just sitting on top of a turf lawn. Right. Have you had an experience like this with your geese getting them back into a healthy balance with the introduction of the migratory bird garden and the removal of this lawn? Hmm. You know, I'm going to have to watch that this year, but I haven't really noticed it that much. Um, Our main lawn is a hill, and I don't think that's as attractive to them as um, a flat expanse. And our other piece of lawn is a flat expanse, but it's a small expanse. So I think they just go up into Grant Park instead of coming to our property. Um, But I wanted to say something else about the maintenance of the migratory bird garden. And um, that is that right now... We're planning uh, probably next week. This is this will be our spring cleanup. And generally, when you think about spring cleanup, you have a crew come through. They cut down everything. They haul it all away. Who knows where it goes? Um, our spring cleanup has more of a, a feel to it, like what you described about, um, you know, paying attention and looking at what you see. And s- we're sort of reflecting how things used to grow because nobody gardened the prairies right? If they did, it was with fire. And I wish we could do that. Maybe someday. (laughs) My team is grimacing. Um, But when we do a spring cleanup, we have um, three guys come through with weed whackers. I do allow this noise. And they just bring all the grasses down by shredding them with the weed whackers, and then we let all that plant material gather on the ground around the plants, and the plants grow in their own mulch, mm. which is just the way it was designed. Yeah, yeah. Common sense is not always is not always put into practice the way you would think it would be, but it uh, that is it, it is common sense once you think about it, and someone points it out, and you all of a sudden see some of the habits that. Well, I mean, human beings just want to make things better, right? We, we're always trying to devise ways of improving the process or the result. Um, and, you know, sometimes it doesn't really work out the way we intend. So when you, when you look at your almost, what, 17-year career, I'm just going to call it 20, inside and out there at the Shed Aquarium. Yes. And yeah. you look at the 13 different gardens and their incorporation of native plants and um, organic gardening practices and integration with the, the, the fauna as well as flora of your place there. Uh, I loved, this is a total side note, but I loved reading about the fact that the original director uh, shoot made it a priority to also include the native fish species of the Great Lakes region, not just the big show-off exotic animals that uh, were the kind of big deal of the time. Exactly. And that is just such a beautiful continuum for you to be on in terms of protecting aquatic life globally, but also very locally. Oh, we still have some of those species. We still have an entire gallery designated for native species. Yeah. And the fact that that's always been there is just, it's, it's, it's not always the case. And so it's a beautiful model to point out. 
When you look at your gardens, Christine, how do you measure success? What does that look like? Success to me looks like other people imitating what we have already done for 22 years. And that's what we see around us right now. The Field Museum has redone their entire footprint. I think they have one more section to do with native plants. Uh, Peggy Notabar Garden is surrounded by native plants. The field, the, um, the park district is putting more native species back in our parkways. Uh, so it w- I was advised early on when I was bemoaning the fact um, that people, you know, should be doing what I was doing. Why aren't people doing what I'm doing? Um, I was told, just do it and they'll follow you. And that was the best advice because that's what I've seen over the last 20-something years. Yes, that's how I measure success. <laughs> As you, as you look to the future of, of our world from your seat, with, you know, looming and complex challenges in the form of human-caused disruption to, to climate and habitat, where do you see the greatest areas of stuckness for, for the people who visit, for fellow gardeners, for other organizations, you know, that, that you are leading and people and groups and institutions are following is such a great a great sign of hope in people getting unstuck. But where do you see our greatest sort of points of being stuck in old ways or ways that don't um, connect these dots, Christine? Well, I think what I see happening is that people are just more aware of what's going on now. And I'm feeling like people are less stuck Maybe it's starting out with the monarch initiatives. Um, maybe they just decide to put a couple of native plants in their yard. But I see less stuckness, Jennifer. Um, and so that gives me hope. Yeah. And there are so many initiatives that have been invented now. Um, people are planting trees. People are doing restorative work. We have a lot of conservation programs at the, at the aquarium where we take out youth and do beach cleanups and our restoration work in some of our parklands. So I just think that there's a lot more interest in it now, and it, that's that's really what keeps me in the game. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. I think we do have we, – we are in a moment of a good turning, uh, an awareness of – what practices, you know, that maybe my generation and the generation before were raised with as good gardening methodology, including, you know, systemic fertilizer insecticides on roses is a primary example. Sure. You look on the the shelf at the feed store or the home and garden store and it says rose care. And <laughs> we read it and said, great, yeah. I want to take yeah. care of my roses. But then slowly we have had the, this veil taken off of our eyes as to what that actually means and what's actually in that. And I, I see this correlated very, very clearly with the, the slow food movement and this greater awareness of what's in everything and asking more questions and having a higher standard of what we expect out of ourselves as as gardeners. Well, as I said before, humans, we just want to improve things. And if you're brought up to think that those are the ways that you improve things by putting chemicals on your roses or whatever it is, then you can only say you were a good student if that's what you believe when you grow up. But as you said, the veil, um, people are learning new skills now and people are getting new stories told. 
and we're seeing different results. And so I, I think that's how we're getting generations coming up behind us that have uh, a different vision of what uh, should be happening. Now, I see your work at the aquarium as being a, a lovely example of a resource that is sort of surprising and kind of perhaps unlikely that if you are a gardener, you wouldn't think to go to your aquarium to find good gardening models and lessons and examples. And yet you are. And as you mentioned in our in our earlier conversation, that there is there is a whole world of horticulturalists who work in association with uh, zoos and aquariums across our country. Are there other resources that you might want to point out to us that we might not know about as great resources for us to find and learn from? I want to say, though, in response to it's surprising that people don't expect to see a garden at the aquarium. And our standard line is, oh, you have gardens at the aquarium? Because, yeah, people come and I think because so much of our landscape is natural they just think it just happened like that because it's part of the natural landscape. <laughs> right. So they're surprised to understand that we actually planted these places and maintain them. You mentioned a couple things that you're going to be working on this year, including trying to get your, your database underway for your plant species. The, the website uh, for the Shed Aquarium, if you follow the tabs to... I think sustainability practices, you will find a lot of information on the gardens and Christine's work there, including a a fairly lovely list of the native plants that are included there at the garden. Besides the database that you're going to be improving, are there other initiatives that you have underway uh, either now or in the coming years that you'd like to share? Oh, I'm doing nutritional testing on a lot of our Foods that we grow because we do feed some of them to the animals, and um, this year we're going to expand that to uh, microbiome testing. So I get to do a little nerdy stuff while I'm out there um, gardening too. Um, And we're just going to keep educating people about why landscape is important and where they live. You've mentioned a couple of times that you feed plants to the animals. Will you give us an example of plants that you are growing that you are feeding to your aquarium residents? So a lot of our species like kale, we don't just have fish inside of our building. We have um, a lot of reptiles, turtles. Um, We even have some monkeys. So we, and they love the kale and they love the lettuces we grow and parsley. One year we even had uh, a lot of pumpkins left over at the end of the season, and we got to scrub those up and give them to our beluga whales to play with, filled with herring. So, you know, we're um, inventive, but cucumbers, um, yeah. So we've been doing a study now for three years, you know, seeing how our vegetables that are grown organically compare to the vegetables that come from our, our, um, our vendor because who knows where those vegetables are coming from and how long it takes to get to us. Any results from that you want to share yet? Nope, not yet. 
Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and hear about your vibrant gardens and place there on Lake Michigan. Thank you, Jennifer. Christine Nye is horticulture manager at Chicago's Shedd Aquarium. As we noted in our conversation, it might seem unlikely to us as plants people to go to an aquarium for a good garden experience that expands our understanding. But the Shedd and Christine Nye are modeling exactly why an aquarium is positioned perfectly to offer just those experiences. The Shed's physical location along the shores of Lake Michigan, their history as a research aquarium in our country, and their mission to spark compassion, curiosity, and conservation for the aquatic animal world reminds all of us that we and our gardens are interconnected with the whole web of life, for better or for worse. We and our gardens can help make this difference for the soil, for the air, for wildlife, and for the watersheds and sources where our aquatic friends make their lives. Last week, Dr. Anurag Agrawal encouraged us to take a multi-prong approach with our own actions on behalf of our fellow creatures, whom we hope to welcome and to help sustain with our gardens. The Shed Aquarium models the importance of support and advocacy at garden, land, and policy levels. This past December, the Shed sent a letter to their membership sharing their position on the Environmental Protection Agency's proposed changes to our nation's Clean Water Act. I thought I'd share some of their position here. Quote, We are writing to express our strong concerns regarding the Environmental Protection Agency's proposed rules to amend the existing definition of waters of the United States within the Clean Water Act. The Clean Water Act is an important statute that has shielded habitats, aquatic wildlife, waterways, and tributaries from pollution. Protections that will now be lost for many wetlands and isolated waterways under the new definition. We urge the continuation of the current waters of the United States requirement that federal protections extend not only to major water bodies like rivers and lakes, but also to streams, ponds, marshes, and wetlands that feed into them. These water bodies all offer important benefits, including protection of wildlife, habitat, recreational opportunities, pollution filtering, and stormwater management. The existing Clean Water Act has drastically protected aquatic wildlife and habitats and reduced water pollution in the United States, including increasing the portion of rivers safe for fishing by 12%. Water is a shared, free-flowing resource. The newly proposed definition will expose acres of wetlands and miles of streams to runoff of pesticides, fertilizer, and industrial pollutant, particularly in lightly regulated states. It is critical that the EPA does not reverse federal water protections and ensure a healthy network of aquatic ecosystems. We ask you to refrain from narrowing the definition of waters of the United States that will put aquatic ecosystems and wildlife at risk. 
At this moment in history, we should be working to uphold and strengthen the Clean Water Act, not undercut it. End quote. Christine Nye of the Shedd Aquarium joined us today from the studios of WBEZ in Chicago. Join us again next week as the conversations continue in this five-part series on our gardens as important and sustaining habitats for the wildlife of our native areas, when we're joined by Dr. Susan Wethington of the Hummingbird Monitoring Network. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from the Shedd Museum's innovative, informative, delicious, and beautiful habitat gardens, see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.